Well, good morning, church. Listen, I'm sorry I can't be with you today, but uh, I'm actually getting to take advantage of a unique opportunity I've never had before. Uh, This morning, I'm actually speaking up in Delaware uh, at uh, Brandywine Valley Baptist Church, which is Hayes and Bethany's new place of residence. Uh, Both the Parnells and the church invited me to come up to be a part of their installation service. And so today, I'm getting to take our blessing from our church to a brand new church. Uh, to be able to bless the Parnells, to bless this congregation. Uh, and so I hope that you'll be praying for the Parnells, be praying for me uh, as I kind of carry that blessing to them. But this is an exciting opportunity for us to be able to bless a brand new church, even bless the Parnells too. So be praying for them and for me. But this morning, you have an incredible speaker coming to bring the Word of God to you today. Uh, Jared C. Wilson has been preaching for us all weekend at our men's retreat. And I'm very excited for him to, you to hear from him today. Jared is the uh, Director of Content Strategy at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He has been speaking and traveling for years. He is the author of over 20 different books. Uh, If you watch the Gospel Coalition, you've probably read some of his blogs over the year. He has a passion for us to be able to live in the Gospel, and you're going to hear that today. And so I'm glad you're going to get to hear from him. I hope you'll join me right now in welcoming Jared C. Wilson. Pardon me, I'll be there in a minute. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I've uh, had a a great privilege of sharing from the Word with your men this past weekend. Uh, We had a great time holding up Jesus, and I uh, am glad for the opportunity to do that with you this morning as well. As we look at something um, I'd like to call the fear-driven life. What does it look like to have a life that is driven by fear? We, we get a portrait of that in this passage. But the first thing we need to say is the characters that we see in this story, they're real historical figures, but the people we see in this story are, um, are normal. Sometimes when we look at the, you know, the history in the Old Testament, we have this, I don't know, flannel graph kind of Sunday school view of the heroes of the patriarchs and those sorts of things, and they just seem somewhat caricatured or out of proportion to reality. But Abram, which is, um, you know, Abraham, before his name has been changed, we're going to see he's called Abram in our uh, focus passage this morning. Abram is a normal believer. He, he really is. Um, he tries a lot of things. He fails at a lot of things. Uh, he manages to do some good things, but generally he tends to mess things up. I don't know if you identify with that. Your intentions are good, but you find you just keep stepping in it. That's kind of Abram. And Abram, like us, is frequently tempted to drift into fear of the world around him. Despite knowing the promises of God. I don't know where that statement finds you this morning, but... To have the truth in, in one sense, to know the promises of God on audio, and yet the threats, the anxiety, the fear, the troubles of the world are on video, it can be somewhat uh, disjointed, can't it? It can lead us into some very precarious places. Well, let's see the sort of precarious place that Abram finds himself in. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, 
I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, the opportunity, the privilege, the right even that we have to gather on this day that belongs to you and exalt your name in song and hear from you through your word. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word in such a way, not that we would just become more intelligent or more religious, but that we might have our affections stirred for your son, Christ Jesus, and be changed by his glory. And it's in his name, the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Uh, Do you know what the most frequent command in all of the Bible is? The command from God that appears more than any other command. We, we, we might would think, if you just ask the average Joe on the street, they would probably think that it's something like love one another. That's a very important commandment. In fact, uh, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and then to love your neighbor um, as yourself. But love one another is not the most frequent command in Scripture. In fact, love God is, isn't even the most frequent command in Scripture. It's not the golden rule, you know, do unto others as, uh, as you would have them do unto you. It's not even be ye holy, all important commandments. The most frequent command in Scripture is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Which ought to tell us something about the kind of world we live in. The kind of world the Lord knew that we were going to live in. But also about the kind of life that God calls his children into. When we first become Christians, there is a, a zeal or a passion usually. We're you know, kind of soaking it in. Everything is somewhat exciting. We enjoy the things of God. Everything seems new and fresh. There's just new vistas of, of understanding and, and, and um, open doors and open windows. It just feels like we've entered into a new world and there's just kind of a, a skip in the step and, and everything seems uber creative and, and glorious. But then as you begin to put some mileage into your Christian life, right, the temptation grows to begin to see things that we previously saw as exciting and fresh, as more routine, maybe kind of vague even, the days go by and our walk begins to feel more normal, more mundane, and the things of earth grow strangely bright in a way they weren't in the early days of our conversion. And we hear competing messages and we hear the noise of the world and the noise of our accuser, Sometimes just the noise of our internal anxieties and insecurities. And they begin to challenge and kind of drown out in some way the still small voice of God. 
And the things of God become less comfortable than the routine of daily life. The vision of God's promise, which drove our faith so strongly in the beginning, seems to wane. Perhaps it seems less compelling, less immediately gratifying than the promises of the things around us, which really seem to be scratching where we itch. And as the fulfillment of the promise seems to delay day by day of being finally delivered from our sin or finally delivered from our suffering, our pain, our anxiety, opportunities for doubt begin to creep in. Well, maybe I misunderstood or maybe, maybe actually God's not who I thought he was. Maybe this Christian life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Discouragement begins to seep in. And with discouragement, with confusion, with doubt comes fear. And the truth is, in this world, there will always be something to be afraid of. There will always be something to be afraid of. If you struggle with finding things to be afraid of, just turn on cable news. They'll very helpfully tell you, here's what to be afraid of today. This is why I think you can hardly go anywhere in the Bible without bumping your nose into the words, don't be afraid. Fear not. And it's possible that this ordinary life that I've just described, this dynamic has settled in with Abram. He was called, if you remember his, his backstory, he's called out of a pagan world and culture into this missionary mandate. He's been called to leave everything he's ever known and experienced, to leave that behind, to abandon that and embark on this mysterious journey with the one true God. And so he has a high passion, a high level of commitment in the beginning. Everything seems new, adventurous, exciting. And Abram is a kind of missionary recruiter, in fact. Everywhere he's going, he's, he's sort of building the people of God. And he's not quite sure exactly where he's going to end up, but he's just going where the Lord leads. And it's, it's just kind of a, a new sort of mysterious adventure every single day. And he's going around and he's witnessing to, uh, uh, about the truth of the one true God. And he's uh, telling people about his own conversion, his own calling out of his pagan culture. And he's accumulating people as he goes. And he's planting altars of worship wherever he goes. And though he's winning converts, he's probably also generating some hostility as he goes as well from people who don't believe. And by the time we get to Genesis 12... Abram's trek has accumulated in our, in our uh, metrics uh, 800 miles. So he's put months into this thing. And all along, God keeps saying things like, I'm going to give you this, Abram. I'm going to give you that, Abram. Just you wait. I'm, I'm going to deliver. I'm going to give you these things, but not yet. And so you can bet that over time, temptation to boredom with that promise grew in Abram's mind. Maybe it's today. Oh, it's not today. Maybe it's today. Oh, it's not today. And after a while, you just kind of feel like, this ain't never going to happen. I will tell you one major lesson we learned just from that experience in our own is that the more bored you are with the things of God, the more vulnerable you will be when difficulty comes. The more bored you are with the things of God, the more vulnerable you will be when difficulty comes. And difficulty came for Abram. I want to share with you three things this morning about the fear-driven life from this text. You will notice there's a famine in the land, verse 10. 
And so Abram makes a logical choice to take his family to Egypt because there's food there. But the wheels of fear are already turning for Abram. They're going to Egypt because they're afraid of starving to death. It makes total sense. But once the fear kicks in, once there's a foot in the door, it seems he can't shake it. The door just keeps getting pushed wider and wider. When he was about to enter Egypt, verse 11, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And I mean, what a way to start a conversation with your wife. I'm sure she's like, oh, thank you. (laughs) When the Egyptians see you, they'll say this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they'll let you live. Say you're my sister. That it might go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. We have to say first, Abram's not being completely irrational. There is a logic to his fear. Just like for a lot of us, there's a logic to our fear, right? I mean, there is such a thing as completely irrational fears. um, Types of neuroses or paranoia that, that aren't real. But for most of us, our fears can be traced to something very logical. It's a very uh, uh, mathematical conclusion that we're making to be afraid of certain things. I'll I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I don't like roller coasters. Roller coasters are uh, born of a bored people (laughs) who have something missing in their life in which they want to experience um, how close they can come to the feeling of death without actually dying. But people have actually died on roller coasters. They don't tell you that when you get on. You have to hear it from a teenager, probably down, you know. Just somebody died four years ago on this thing. I don't understand it. I've never liked them. I want to jump off a cliff and feel what that you know, feels like. No, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Don't need that feeling. I remember when I was a teenager and my friends and I would go to amusement parks and theme parks or the fair and there's roller coasters and there's peer pressure. Come on, don't you want to do it? You know? No, I don't want to do it. It's not natural. Nobody in their right mind looks at a hundred foot drop and thinks, I think I'll jump off of this, right? They think it's fun, but it's not fun. It's, it's madness. And it seems irrational to me that somebody would enjoy it. And it seems totally rational that I should be afraid of that. It seems perfectly normal. Air travel, something that's so routine and mundane. I was sharing with um, some of the men this week, one of my own experiences of almost dying on an airplane. I promise that really almost happened, that I almost died. It just doesn't seem right that we should be in a metal tube 30,000 feet in the air. I don't believe God. I think we're testing God every time we do it. And I begin thinking, like, something's going to go wrong. And when something goes wrong, right, if something goes wrong in your car, you just pull over, right? Well, something goes wrong on the airplane, what do you do? There's no pulling over. There's always somebody who comes along very helpfully says, you know, statistically, you're more likely to be in a car crash than you are in a plane crash. And I say, statistically, you're likely to get punched in the face for saying things like that to me. No, I'm thinking I'm more likely to survive a car crash than I am a plane crash. There's a, there's a logic to it. It may be far-fletched, you know, large, you know, logic, but it's still, I think, rational. Similarly, most of the things that we're afraid of are real things, real stresses, real problems, real circumstances. What if I can't pay my bills? What if something happens to my daughter or my son when they 
leave the house to go to, you know, out of state or travel or there's things that happen to people that we know and therefore we translate them into our own experience and we have, these are rational things. Not imaginary, we're not afraid of the boogeyman anymore, we're afraid of actual real threats. But it's what you do with that reasoning, with that logic that makes all the difference. It's not about having some make-believe world where you pretend bad things never happen or that bad things could never happen to you. It's what you do with that knowledge. And so what does Abram do? He starts running the numbers. Egypt, beautiful wife, you put these things together, this is trouble. And it begins to play in his mind and then he begins to bend, uh, uh, he begins playing the angles. And there's zero evidence as he's kind of running these numbers being completely rational, there's zero evidence that his faith in the God who has called him plays into any of his thinking. He's being driven by fear. Not just informed by it, but motivated by it. There's a difference between being informed by your fear and being motivated or driven by your fear. When you're driven by fear, faith takes a back seat. That's the first thing that I would share with you. The fear-driven life is faithless. The fear-driven life is faithless. Uh, the commentators, uh, Kyle and Delish, simply say his precaution, Abram's precaution, did not spring from faith. No, it sprang from fear. And there's a good kind of cautiousness, right? The sort of wisdom that doesn't jump into every situation or make rash decisions. That's a precaution that springs from faith. But then there's a kind of cautiousness that has more to do with managing our own disobedience. How disobedient can I be and still get away with what I want to do? And this comes when the vision of the things around us is greater than the vision of him who has called us. And the less Godward you are looking, the more afraid you will be. If you take your eyes off the Lord, you have great cause to be afraid. Ramon Preston writes, the most repeated command in Scripture is fear not. He says it appears 365 times. I'm just going to believe him. I didn't count. He says 365 times, one for each day of the year. And is usually followed by, do you know what phrase usually follows the phrase, don't be afraid in, in, in the Bible? It's the phrase, for I am with you. I am with you. God would have us understand that factoring in his presence always changes the equation. It seems like for Abram, God's presence did not factor into the equation. He looks at his circumstances, famine, Egypt, beautiful wife, dangerous people, and he doesn't look at God. And so his perspective becomes skewed. This is us when it comes to fear. We let fear drive our life when we start believing that greater is that which is in the world than he who is in us. The fear-driven life is faithless. Secondly, the fear-driven life is self-centered. The fear-driven life is self-centered. Look again at verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it might go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. What's Abram's motivation here? To save himself, to save his own skin. He's afraid of losing his own life. He doesn't seem too afraid for Sarai. He doesn't seem afraid of her dying. He doesn't even seem to be afraid of her being sexually exploited, which is the most likely outcome of this arrangement. Abram keeps running those numbers. 
Maybe he thinks this will buy him some time. Maybe he's banking on um, the Egyptians following. There's a cultural custom of that day where you negotiate with a brother for the hand of a sister in marriage if, there's a, uh, uh, if the father's not in the picture. So maybe he thinks he's going to buy some time. He'll be able to think more, come up with another strategy out of this if he just plays this lie just right. But none of that is a certainty. It's all just assumptions that he might be making. And, and ultimately, Abram goes the route he goes because he's willing, he's willing to trade in protection of his wife in order to save himself. He's self-centered. It's been like this since the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Do you remember when Eve is having that terrible dialogue with the serpent and being tempted to disobey God, to rebel against his authority? We have this idea that uh, because we don't hear from Adam that he's like somewhere else, gone to the store or something, right? He's not there. But at the end of the passage, it says Eve turns to her husband who was standing there. And he takes and eats of the fruit. And our sin, our fallenness, the original sin that each of us is born with, biblically speaking, is not said to come from Eve, but from Adam. The human father of mankind. Adam's standing there, not intervening, not protecting, not leading, embracing a, 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 a kind of passivity, an observational passivity. The fear-driven life has a sense of security in its consideration, but it's trying to find in one's own power the kind of security that can only be found in God. Bob Deffenball says, Abram was clinging to his wife's petticoat for protection and blessing rather than to the promise of God. The fear-driven life is self-centered. It doesn't see the union that Christians have in Christ and therefore the perfect security that we have in God. It sees only what it stands to lose, not what it has already gained. The fear-driven life cannot even rightly claim to be for others. And this is a really important point for us to remember, especially those of us who have children. We fear for our kids so much, don't we? We, we worry about the world that they're growing up in, if we have grown children, the kind of world that they're trying to navigate and succeed in. And we see so much danger, so much that threatens them, so many ways they could go off track. But when our fear begins to drive our parenting, we end up smothering our kids with hyper-control or micromanaging or coddling them or nitpicking them. We can even drive them away from the faith because we have so emphasized in ourselves and in our own parenting fear over faith. And in the end, we've done all this not because we worry about their security, but because we are racked with fear. We're driven by our own need for security and to feel safe. We are afraid. The other night, we have two daughters, two um, college-age daughters. They live in Pennsylvania, so very far from us. We live in Kansas City, Missouri. I worry. Two single gals, young, 15 hours away from dad, who can protect them. 
One of them posted, I had no idea this was happening. They posted on Instagram, they were driving into Philadelphia for a concert. And I just thought, oh no. And I got out my phone. I wanted to text, be careful, right? And you say, be careful. I thought, I'm not going to do that. That's just going to, I'm going to trust that they're halfway smart because of their mother, at least. Maybe not because of me. It was my fear, and I didn't want to put that on them. As if Abram needs any help focusing on himself, (laughs) look at what happens uh, as the result of his scheming. It doesn't appear to backfire. This This is a huge problem, actually, at least in this moment. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, just like he expected that they would. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. It looks like his logic has paid off. In today's terms, it's like being showered with, hey, you know what? I've got the spare mansion. Uh, There's like four Lamborghinis in the garage. Why don't you have all of that? I'll send you butlers, anything you want. Abram was looking for his own comfort, and he got it. But it comes with a great price, doesn't it? Because Abram might have gotten a whole bunch of stuff for his own comfort, but the the second part of verse 15, to me, is really chilling. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And I'm picturing Abram looking at all this stuff that he's just gotten. And his eyes are getting big. And then he looks up and watches the vision of his wife's back get smaller and smaller and be taken behind the gates and the doors closed. And if he's a man of God, his heart sinks. And he thinks, what have I done? This is not a worthy trade. So this is the third and final thing we learn about the fear-driven life. The fear-driven life idolizes comfort. Idolizes comfort. Our whole world is set up for comfort, convenience, efficiency. The idol of the world is comfort. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet the idol of your neighborhood is some kind of comfort. The society we live in prizes comfort above all. Sarai is up in Pharaoh's house enduring God knows what while Abram is enjoying the spoils of his scheming. And really, spiritually speaking, Abram has never been in more danger than he is right now. My first mentor in the ministry, a fellow by the name of Mike Ayers, once said to me, to be a follower of Jesus means you must renounce comfort as the ultimate value in your life. Whoa. Said that to me almost 30 years ago. I've never forgotten it. One wonders what this experience is even teaching Abram. It's not even clear after all is said and done, we get even to the end of this passage, that Abram learns his lesson because in Genesis 20, he repeats the same scheme. He does it again. Old fears die hard. Fear will drive us away from faith in God. Fear will drive us further into ourselves. Fear will drive us into a very self-deluded comfort. When we are driven by fear and not by the glorious grace of God in Christ Jesus, we'll begin to think that there's uh, nothing worse than suffering. 
Do you think suffering is the worst thing that can happen to you? But Jesus, who said, take up your cross and follow me, also said, do not fear him who can take your life. Fear him who can take your life and your soul. In other words, believe it or not, the world doesn't get this. Which is why so, um, so much money is spent on trying to avoid the reality. The world does not get what we ought to get as believers. Dying isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. Dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Dying after you die is the worst thing that can happen to you. Which is why Jesus also says, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? We have this notion that difficulty is not normal. And in a way, there's a, the, the seed of truth to that because the, God designed the world good. And before sin came in, before Adam and Eve disobeyed and, and rebelled and brought uh, the, the usurping of his authority and brought the curse um, into this place, um, difficulty wasn't normal. And I think somehow we kind of feel that in our bones a little bit. We've got that kind of in our DNA to some extent. There's the echo of Eden in us. But since the fall, suffering is how the world works. Difficulty and brokenness is the way of the world. It is normal since the fall. And we might say intellectually, if I gave you sort of a theological exam and said, do you think suffering uh, isn't normal. You might would say, no, of course it's normal in a fallen world. But when it happens to us, we act like something super abnormal is happening. We think, surely God wouldn't have meant something like this to happen to me. And we have this kind of functional prosperity gospel working inside of us. Oh, I know you don't send money to that guy to buy his jet and all those sorts of things. But when difficulty happens and you begin to kind of bargain with God, what? I've been going to church. I've been having my quiet time. I've, I've been giving. I've been really working hard, Lord. Why would you let this happen to me? That's prosperity gospel thinking, thinking that you can buy comfort through your religious efforts. And God never promises us comfort in this life anyway. He promises us peace. That's different. He promises us joy. That's different. He never promises safety, but he does promise security. That's different. The fear-driven life is motivated by comfort, but the faith-filled life is motivated by him in whom we have believed. And the faith-filled life is persuaded that he is able, we are not, but he is able to guard that which we've committed to him until the end of days. The thing about the gospel of Jesus that is so disturbing to our little protected areas of comfort that these places we have set up for our little idols and Jesus just comes marching through and kicking them all over. Sometimes difficulty, affliction for us is actually a severe mercy. The Lord is knocking out these crutches out from under us because he wants us to rely on him. And if you are seeking your security in something other than God himself, he will disrupt you and that is an act of grace. Make no mistake, the worst thing that can happen to you is to sail through life comfortable and safe and easy and never realize your need for God's salvation. Just gliding through the happy days of life right into the pits of hell. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. 
is to be totally comfortable all your life until the end when you can't do anything about it. God does not allow this little fear-driven, self-promotional wonderland of Abram's to continue. He barged in and he showed them all who's really in charge. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. We don't know what the plague is. It's, it's, it's maybe like boils or something like that. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us explicitly if Sarai was sexually compromised by Pharaoh. But even if she wasn't, even if they dodged that bullet somehow, it doesn't make what Abram did okay. The point is that Abram trusted in himself rather than in God. And God said, I'm not letting you play this game. When you seek a security that can only be found in God and anything other than God, you will always be seeking. It's not until you place your faith in Christ Jesus that you find the kind of security that nothing in the world can take away from you. No matter what difficulty you walk into, to know that you're secure in Christ that's the ultimate, the ultimate security. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. I promise you, it's going to be hard. But take heart. I have overcome the world. How did he do this? Well, Jesus himself was not immune to suffering. In fact, the Son of God takes on flesh very much to endure the temptations that we face and the hardship and even death. And facing the terrible dark cloud of the cross, Jesus was running the numbers. You remember these prayer in the garden. If there's any other way, God, to let this cup pass from me, let's do that. And yet it was not the Father's will. And while he was anguished and agonized, his friends were sleeping, napping, as comfortable as they could get, and Jesus is sweating blood and already carrying their souls on his back where he could already feel the splinters of the cross to come. And he could have sold his bride out. These guys? I'm dying for these guys? Forget it. He could have sold out his bride, handed us over, and spared himself, but he didn't. He took on the full weight of the cross so we wouldn't have to. And he died to forgive sins and he rose again to secure eternal life for us. And he ascended into heaven and Ephesians 2.6 says that those who trust in Christ have themselves been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Colossians 3.3 says that the Christian is hidden with Christ in God. The Christian is united to Christ in inextricably, inexplicably connected to Christ. And if we are united to Christ by faith, hidden with him in God, we are as secure as he is. Now, how secure do you think the son of God is? That's who you're united to by faith. He's eternally secure. He's the son of God. And you're hidden in him. This reality overturns the fear-driven life. It ought to reverse it in our hearts and minds. Once you realize that your security in Christ 
is purchased and upheld by him. And once you realize that the world is governed by the sovereign God who loves you, it changes everything, or it ought to. Don't let fear drive your life. If you're here this morning and and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation with God the Father, I urge you to do it today. Make that decision this very morning. He won't give you a life of comfort. In fact, if I can be straight with you, to be a Christian is actually to take more difficulty into your life. Because not only do you just have the ordinary difficulty of just being a human in a broken, fallen world, you get to add persecutions, being out of step with the culture, and so on and so forth. It's actually harder. So he's not going to promise you comfort and ease, but he will give you life. Real life, finally, you get to be alive and be connected to the God who loves you. And if you have trusted in Christ, for every saint in this room, all the brothers and sisters, but you find that your life lately is just riddled by fear, I urge you to take heart. Maybe you need to turn off some of those voices that are feeding your paranoia and your resentment, and your bitterness, and your insecurity. Maybe you need to turn some of those off and look up to the one who is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Take heart. Ask God to help you with your unbelief. Remember that he has overcome the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, you are good and you do good. We thank you for the gift of your gospel, which doesn't just send us good vibes, grace as some ethereal virtue, but actually plants grace in our hearts through your spirit. We thank you for the gift that bears fruit in us over time, that you are faithful even when we are faithless. Help us to see every day, just put your, your fist under our chin and, and lift our gaze up to see your son seated at your right hand and know that he is ruling everything and that all things are being subjected under his feet. Give us the heart to believe it. Give us the eyes to see it and the hands and feet to serve others in light of it. And it's in his name, the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.